This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Peter called Stand Firm in Grace. But seven truths to endure the fire. Seven truths to endure the fire. I thought seven sounded like a lot, but then we sang 10,000 reasons already, so maybe seven is not quite so much. But seven truths from this passage to endure the fire. And I've got seven key words for you this afternoon just to keep it simple. The first word is this. Plan. I'm not talking about our plan to survive, but this plan of God that is behind everything. This passage is talking about suffering, and not suffering in general, not about the things that everyone in this world sadly has to endure, losing your job, losing a child, having a stroke. Not those ordinary, sadly, things of life, those ordinary pains and difficulties, but particularly the suffering that we are called to embrace as followers of Jesus. Suffering that only comes our way because we have chosen to follow Christ. Suffering that we could avoid if we wanted to by denying Jesus. And these things are happening to the people that Peter is writing to. We're not yet at the point of full-scale persecution. The Roman Empire is not yet dragging people in the arena burning them alive, offering them to wild animals or gladiators. Things like that are not yet happening, but there is what Peter calls a fiery trial, the difficulty of people in your society hating you, rejecting you, treating you as an undesirable and as an outsider. And Peter tells his readers, don't be surprised at this fire that has come upon you. Don't be surprised. A lot of Christians are very surprised when difficult things happen to them. We shouldn't be surprised because this is what Jesus had warned us of again and again in his life on earth. And the the, the apostles faithfully warn us difficult things will happen if you follow Jesus. But for many of us, when difficult things happen, it throws us into a crisis. Our whole faith starts collapsing around our ears We feel like God has abandoned us, that the Holy Spirit is no longer present, that the promises of God have somehow failed, and that God is breaking his commitment to care for his people. We don't want to live that kind of life. We have been prepped to live a life of prosperity. Hashtag blessed. And there are teachers in the church today, I'm sorry to say, that preach that the normal Christian life is one of prosperity, of health and wealth, of satisfaction and joy unmixed with any kind of sorrow. And they teach that if you are truly full of faith, nothing bad and nothing difficult will happen to you. And sadly, this prosperity teaching has infected the church around the globe, especially in Latin America and Africa, but in many, many countries as well. And when those Christians experience difficulty in their lives, it shatters their faith. 
And they wonder, do I have any faith at all? Does God hate me? Am I not one of God's favored children? What on earth is going wrong? On my bed, we have this absolutely luscious memory foam mattress. I don't know if any of you have had the pleasure of sinking into memory foam, but it's wonderful because it maintains the imprint of your body and it just makes for a much more comfortable sleep. And it would be very nice if our entire lives were cushioned in memory foam, wouldn't it? Because all of us love comfort and we will avoid suffering and difficulty at any cost. And we go to great lengths to arrange our lives to avoid all possible discomfort. And then Jesus comes and he says, unless you take up your cross to follow me, you are not worthy to be my disciple. If anyone wants to follow me, he needs to count the cost. There is a cost to following Jesus And faithfully sharing the gospel with people means that we must tell them of the cost. And faithfully preaching the word of God and encouraging one another means we need to talk about the cost of following Jesus so that it is not a surprise when difficulty and hardship and hatred and oppression strike us. It should be exactly what we are expecting if we follow Jesus. The Bible says that anyone who wants to follow Jesus in this life, anyone who does the will of God will be persecuted. It's just a general truth that if you follow Jesus, there is going to be opposition and persecution. I'm not saying if there isn't in your life that you're not a Christian, but it should make us ask, how faithfully am I following Jesus if nothing at all is opposing me, if my way is completely clear sailing? That is a bit of a dangerous sign. The surprising thing is not that we are persecuted, but that we are not persecuted. That is the odd and unusual situation because throughout history and across the world, the children of God, our brothers and sisters in the faith, have suffered for Jesus. There is a plan. That's the first key word. There is a plan that God has for us. Going to the very last verse in our text, verse 19, Peter talks about those who are suffering according to the will of God. There is a will of God behind suffering for the gospel. There's that amazing story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph, one of the 12 brothers with the multicolored coat, his brothers hate him, they resent him, they throw him into the pit, he goes off to Egypt as a slave, he's falsely accused, he spends years in prison, And then finally, as basically the prime minister, his brothers come to him begging for food, and he has them at his mercy. And they are freaked out when they recognize him that Joseph, at last, is going to take his vengeance. And he says to them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Yeah, his brothers had hostile, wicked, hateful intentions toward him. But Joseph recognized behind and above those intentions is a will of God that means good for me. The fire that these Christians are going through is a fire ignited by the hatred of their neighbors who insult them and despise them. And behind them 
is the evil one seeking to oppress and destroy the children of God. But there is someone behind and above Satan who is overruling all his designs for the good of his people. So when we suffer for Jesus, remember, plan. I am at the center of God's will right now. This is not meaningless, hopeless suffering that should cause me to despair and feel like God's abandoned me. This is the will of God for those who are faithful to Jesus. First word, plan. Second word is this, cross. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, Peter writes. That word share is an interesting one. It's the Greek word koinoneo, koinonia, you might know. The word means fellowship. We're sharing, we're participating, we're having fellowship with Jesus when we suffer for his name. Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, speaks about counting everything as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus. And he burns with such passion for Christ, he says in verse 10 of that chapter, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Paul had this burning ambition to share not only in the resurrection and glory of Jesus, but in his very suffering. He loved his master so much he longed to be with Jesus wherever Jesus was. And if the footsteps of Jesus pass through the field of suffering, that is where Paul wants to be. Not because his sufferings atone for sin the way only Jesus' death on the cross does, but simply because he wants to be with Jesus and he wants to be like Jesus. Love for Christ overwhelms the fear of suffering. Love for Jesus overwhelms the fear of suffering. And we have to ask ourselves at this stage in the passage, how strong is my own love for Jesus? Is my ambition nothing higher than to have a life of ease and comfort and avoid suffering? Or do I love Jesus enough to follow my master, my crucified Lord, wherever he leads. I want to be with Jesus, and if Jesus is in suffering, that's where I want to be. There's a story in the book of Daniel about Daniel's three friends, and they're commanded to bow down to this idol that the evil King Nebuchadnezzar has built. And they refuse. Everyone else is bowing down, the trumpets and the drum sounds, and these guys are standing up straight in this gathering of all these people on their faces bowing down to the idol. And Nebuchadnezzar says, if you don't bow down, I'm going to toss you in the fire. And they say, our God is able to deliver us from the fire. But if not, if God does not deliver us from the fire, we are still not going to bow down to you. And Nebuchadnezzar commands these three men to be thrown in this fiery furnace, a furnace burning so hot that the guards fall down dead because of the blast of heat that is coming from this furnace. And then you remember Nebuchadnezzar peers forward and he says, did I not command that only three men be thrown in the fire? 
Why is there a fourth man walking in the fire? Christ is the fourth man. Now, whatever fire we go through out of obedience to him, we find Jesus waiting and walking in the fire for us. And thank God, the fire, the cross, is not the end of the story because Peter goes on to say that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Look, the cross without the resurrection is a meaningless tragedy. The cross without the resurrection is a meaningless tragedy. There's no gospel if there's no resurrection. But thank God, Jesus is alive. He's not rotting in the tomb somewhere, and we are not going to rot in the tomb either. Suffering is not the end of the story. Christians do not and should not love pain and suffering and death for their own sake. They are profoundly unnatural things, and we shrink away from them for good reason. We embrace suffering because suffering is the path to glory. And notice that Peter is not talking about our own glory. He's talking about the glory of Jesus being revealed. And there's many things we long for at the return of Jesus when he brings in the new heaven and the new earth. But the very highest thing of all is seeing the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me shining out in his full glory, a glory that is now hidden and the eye of faith can only dimly perceive. But one day the veil will be removed and we will see Jesus as he really is. And that will be a cause for joy so massive and awesome. God will have to give us new and enlarged hearts that can bear the tremendous weight of the glory that he's going to reveal to us. And the only way we get to see that glory, the summit of all human happiness, is if we follow Jesus down the path of suffering. Our master himself only found glory along the path of suffering. And I tell you, the servant is not above his master. The Christian life, like all human maturity, is about delayed gratification. You know, children find it hard to say no to the chocolate now in favor of two chocolates an hour from now. And you really become an adult when you're able to start waiting for things. Delayed gratification is the essence of maturity, and delayed gratification is what the Christian life is all about. That great hall of fame, the hall of the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, these were men and women who died not having received what was promised. They died not yet having cashed in the promises of God. And all of us are going to die not having received all that God has promised. We are waiting and hoping and longing for the glory that is to come. And the message of the New Testament is this. No groans, no glory. No cross, no crown. We follow Jesus along the path of suffering. Fourth keyword, the fourth truth 
to help us endure the fire is this, the spirit. The spirit. Peter says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. There is a counterintuitive sentence if there ever was one. And he's just echoing the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Hashtag blessed. Why can we say that we are blessed in that situation according to Peter? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. When we are insulted for the name of Jesus, it's because those who hate and resist God sense his presence resting on us. And if they hate Jesus, if they hate his spirit, they will hate us as well. You know that phrase about the spirit resting upon someone should be vaguely familiar to you because in the book of Isaiah, a text that we often read at Christmas, it says that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding and so forth are going to rest on the Messiah, the Savior, the suffering servant that God is going to send. And here we are now, the people of God, and the same spirit that rested on Jesus and empowered him to obey God all the way to the end now rests upon us. The Holy Spirit and his resting upon us is the only way we can possibly endure the hatred of the world. This is absolutely not a project you can achieve in your own strength. We need the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts after Pentecost is filled with wonderful and amazing manifestations of the Spirit's power in healings and miracles and tongues and prophecies. And pray God, may we experience those things more and more in this church. But the most powerful demonstration of the presence of the Spirit in the book of Acts and in the church of God down through the centuries and across the world is this, the people of God rejoicing to be insulted for the name of Jesus. That is the most powerful demonstration of the Spirit of God on anyone because that is not something the flesh could ever produce on its own. Suffering is not a sign of the absence of God. It's actually a sign of God's presence, according to Peter. When you're insulted, when people hate you, remember, the Holy Spirit is resting upon you. The Spirit of glory that rested upon the people of Israel through the wilderness is resting with us. And somehow, in persecution and hatred and insult, we can experience already the glory of God through the Holy Spirit. Because you know what? God keeps his wine in the deepest cellars. And diamonds are dug out of the darkest holes. And we experience the presence of God through the Spirit when we suffer for Jesus as in no other way. The Spirit. Keyword number five is calling calling. Peter says, 
By the way, make sure, get yourself clear, make sure that you're not suffering as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or even a meddler interfering with other people's business. Not every kind of suffering, not every kind of judgment and condemnation is because you're being persecuted. So don't screech out persecution if you are fired from your job for being a jerk or for being lazy or for stealing from your employer. Let's make sure, Peter says, that if we are suffering, that the only crime for which we can be convicted is this. I am a Christian. That's the only thing people could possibly hold against me. And if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Every society uses shame and ridicule and insult as a method of social control to get people to conform to the standard and behave in a certain way. And because Christianity, when truly lived out, totally undermines the spirit of the world, the world is going to shame people who are truly following Jesus. And there's going to be strong temptation to feel ashamed of the name of Christ and to want to disassociate yourself with him just as Peter himself denied his master three times. Don't be ashamed. Determine. I'm not going to be ashamed. People are going to try to put this false shame on me. I do not need to be shamed because the name of Jesus is a name of glory and power. Here's the calling. Instead of being ashamed, let him glorify God in that name, Peter says. Here people are putting this word Christian on you as an insult. Remember, Christian was not a word that believers put on themselves. In the book of Acts, it was first in Antioch that outsiders called people Christians, trying to associate them with this Jesus of Nazareth, who as everyone knew had been executed on the shameful cross. And they were trying to smear people with that same kind of shame. But we must remember the name of Jesus is the name above every name. There is no more glorious and honorable name that you could possibly bear than the name at which every knee must bow. That is a name we should be proud to bear. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has written his own name over me. I have a little tag that shows who owns me, and it's Jesus Christ who bought me with his own blood. And the great purpose of our lives is not to get through it suffering as little as possible. The great purpose of our lives is to bear witness to Jesus by the power of the Spirit to allow his glory to shine through our lives. My identity and your identity is Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Jesus Christ who lives in me. And we want to make sure that when people see us, they are really seeing through us the glory of the risen Jesus calling. And that is an encouragement when we suffer for Jesus, that we are actually doing something purposeful, something of the highest and greatest purpose, bearing witness for our master. Sixth keyword, number six, the sixth truth to help you withstand the fire is judgment. 
Probably not a word you would associate with great encouragement, but here for Peter it is. He says this, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now we often mistakenly associate the word judgment in the Bible only with condemnation and punishment. But of course, judges do a lot more than condemn and punish. That is only one possible conclusion to the whole act of judging. Judging is about sifting, weighing, evaluating, discerning the truth. And God is using the hostility of outsiders to determine the truth about his people. Does their faith have any value? If I put this through the fire, is any gold, is any silver going to emerge or is it all going to wrinkle and burn up? And then Peter says this. He asks this question. If judgment begins at the household of God, if God has come to his holy temple to purify and cleanse his people, and that means undergoing severe suffering and even the fire of trial, what will be the outcome for those who disobey? The outcome, the telos, the end. For Christians, suffering is not the end. It's not the destination. It's just the path to the destination. But for those who resist Jesus, however easy their lives might be now, it is their ultimate destination. And that should frighten us for their sake. Here we are as Christians, as the righteous ones by the Spirit, and we're saved only with difficulty. It doesn't mean it's difficult for God or that we're barely saved and we only just make it in. It means this, the path is a hard one. The gate is narrow, Jesus says, and only a few find the way of salvation. And it is, if it is difficult to be saved, how much more difficulty and how much more terror for those who refuse to obey the gospel. Here are these believers in Peter's time experiencing hatred, and being despised by those around them, tempted, I'm sure, to resentment and bitterness at those who are oppressing them without cause. And the comfort is this. God is the true judge, and he is going to bring about justice in the end. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And the martyrs are around the throne in the book of Revelation crying out, How long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? And God is saying, just a little while longer. I'm waiting so that all might repent and come to faith. Just a little while longer. And then true justice is going to happen when Jesus is revealed. So we've gone through six key words already. Six truths to help us endure the fire. The plan. You are at the center of God's will. The cross. You are sharing in Christ's sufferings. The crown, there is glory to be revealed. The spirit of God and glory who rests upon you. The calling to witness and glorify God under the name of Christian. Judgment beginning with the household of God. And here's the last key word. Guardian. Our passage concludes with this verse. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That should sound vaguely familiar because in chapter 
2, verse 23, Peter says about Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And just like Jesus in obeying God committed himself, he entrusted himself, he laid his entire weight on the sovereign hand of God. We are called to do the same thing. If you think about the fires of persecution arising in your own country and your own situation, I hope you feel weak thinking about that. I hope you wonder, would I remain faithful to Jesus? Would I deny my master? You should feel weak. If you don't feel weak, you are very, very foolish. What we're called to do when we contemplate persecution and suffering for the sake of Christ, we must entrust ourselves completely to God. You are not strong enough to endure the fire in your own strength. Everyone here is flammable and will burn up on their own. You cannot preserve yourself in the fire. And we must hand ourselves over completely to the faithful creator. And notice that word faithful. We entrust ourselves to God because he is trustworthy and he will never fail us. He will never, ever leave us or forsake us whatever he calls us to. And he will either deliver us from the fire or out of the fire or even through the fire. The fire is not the end of the story. God's faithfulness ensures that the end of the story is sharing glory with Jesus, our King. And now, let's pray because we need the power of God to activate these things we're speaking of whenever the time comes. Father God, faithful creator, Father of Jesus, we come to you confessing to you our weakness. We are prone to wander, we are weak, and we can easily imagine ourselves denying Jesus. We need your strength, O oh Lord. We need the presence of your Holy Spirit to rest upon us, we need him to remind us again and again that we follow a crucified master on the way to glory. We are weak, but you are strong, O oh Lord. We do not know what the future holds for us. We do not know what you are going to call anyone here to. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would prepare us now, help us to stock up now, to build our characters now, so that we can be faithful to you whether or not we experience persecution in our lives. And Lord, we remember our brothers and sisters throughout the world for whom this passage is not a distant speculation. It is their life right now. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are in prison, who are facing death, who are experiencing the hatred of those around them. And we ask, O oh Lord, for your grace to fill their lives. And we intercede for them. We ask that you would give them supernatural strength to endure. May the glory of the risen Christ shine through them. And may those who hate them and persecute them be overwhelmed by your presence in them and come also to faith in Jesus. Lord Jesus, we confess that you are worthy.
And you and you alone are worth the loss of all things in this life so that we might gain you. It is in your glorious name and for your sake that we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.